0: the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher.
1: I invite you to join me one last time in Hebrews chapter 13. We have a lot of ground to cover this morning in a text that should change how we live, how we worship, how we serve our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. John Mark Hicks tells about his son, Joshua, who was born with San Filippo syndrome A. This is actually a genetic disorder. I'd never heard of it before, but it's a genetic disorder that sounds horrible. It causes slow mental and physical degeneration. And he tells about his son's experience on a school bus, From the first day that Joshua, his son, ever saw a school bus, he was a typical kid. He wanted to ride it. He wanted to get on one. And you can relate to that because a lot of your kids are probably the same way. Well, he wanted to be like his older sister. She rode the bus and this is what he wanted to do. And whenever a bus would come by, whenever they'd see one, when they're driving down the road, he would shout out, I want to ride the bus. I want to ride the bus. Well, finally, his day came and every morning, John would take his son out to wait for the bus from by his office. And Joshua saw it coming and he would just start jumping up and he'd start screaming with joy because the bus was coming. But one day, for some reason, Joshua didn't want to get on that bus. So John kind of had to nudge him. He had to take him by the hand and gently lead him up the steps of the bus. And Joshua got on, but he was still whining about it. He was still hesitant. He was still reluctant John thought perhaps his son was just having a bad day, but as that bus drove away, John learned why his son was holding back because he heard words that tore his heart. John said, it was as if a knife had been stuck into my gut and twisted. The older kids were ridiculing my son, Josh. The older kids were calling him names. They mocked him. They ridiculed his need for diapers and mocked how he had used them in the past. And as the bus drove away, as the bus drove off, John could actually hear it. He could hear the other kids mocking and making fun of his son. And he could see his son stumble down the aisle looking for a seat, but no one would let him sit. John was completely honest and he said anger. Anger grew inside of me all morning. I want to take some of those older kids and heap some of my own abuse on them. Let them see how it feels. Let them know what it's like to be ridiculed and mocked. And he thought, well, maybe as a parent, I should talk to the principal. Maybe I should go talk to the bus driver. Maybe I should talk to the teachers or the other parents. His helplessness increased his own frustration Finally, he took his anger and his hurt out to God and he went to his office and he poured out his heart before God and he just prayed and he says that he held nothing back. He complained to God and then he complained some more. Why was my son born with this horrible condition? Why are others permitted to inflict pain upon the innocent? Why hadn't God answered our prayers for a healthy son? Why hadn't the sovereign God of the universe blessed him with health? Then in the midst of the complaint, John was reminded that God the father, God the father, they treated his son this way too. And in that moment, God provided a comfort that John said he still cannot explain, a comfort that he still to this day experiences in his own heart. And he later wrote, now and only now do I have some sense of the pain that a father has when his own son is ridiculed. Only now can I begin to appreciate the pain of my heavenly father as he watched his son be ridiculed on the cross. The message this morning is that God knows your pain, the pain of ridicule, the pain of shame, but it's only temporary until the day that God honors you forever in heaven. Now, this is the ground that we're going to be walking through as we get to Hebrews 13. And the message is, is that if you want to experience worship that changes your entire life, follow Christ, carry his shame and bear his reproach. We start with verse nine of Hebrews chapter 13. It says, do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. Various and strange doctrines. The author means anything foreign to the message of grace, because some of the Hebrew believers wanted to go back to the Jewish regulations, back to following the laws that told them what food was clean and what food was unclean the sacrificial feasts and the rituals. You see, here's what was going on back in that day. The Jews actually at one point in time, they taught that eating food strengthened the heart. You can see the play on words in the text. They taught that eating food strengthened the heart because as they ate their food, they gave thanks to God. And then God was said to be brought into their experience. Really at its core, it was a very man-centered approach to attempting to experience God eating certain foods or abstaining from certain foods and meant to the Jews that they were a little more righteous, a little more godly. So the author is telling them, believer, it is good that the heart be established by what grace, but it doesn't come by chasing after these regulations, these Jewish regulations, because the message of grace, it comes to us through God's words. It's better to understand that Christ's death on the cross is the source of God's strengthening grace. God's grace is found at the cross. God's grace is found in his word. No rituals that you can add will give you more of God's grace. No rituals added by men will make you righteous before him. Justification, sanctification, or fellowship with God, they do not come by trying to earn grace or obtain a means of grace. Grace is found in Christ himself. Grace is found in God. Grace is found in what he's already done. And grace is found in his word because it teaches us of his wondrous love for us. Didn't the apostle Paul speak about this when he wrote to the church of Corinth when he said, but food, Food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat, are we the worse? You see, meaningless rules that come from men. This is why I get frustrated with a lot of churches and a lot of traditions today. Meaningless rules that come from men do not provide the grace of God. The spiritual strength needed for walking the journey of the Christian faith, it comes from Jesus Christ. And the author, he now builds on this. And he says, starting in verse 10, he says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered outside the gate. The reference Here, the tabernacle is a reference to the Jewish tabernacle. Of course, the center of Jewish worship for centuries, for centuries, that tent had an altar. But we who follow Christ, what do we have? We have a better altar, an altar which from nobody else can eat. This is not a reference to the mass of Christ. It's a figure of speech referring to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the benefit to believers of eternal forgiveness found in Christ. He's telling them here in verse 10, he's saying the old covenant priests were allowed to eat some of the meats of the sacrifices. But those that still held to that old covenant, those that were looking to the laws of Moses to try to earn their salvation that way, were not entitled to the benefits of the cross because you can't earn your salvation. You never could. These Jewish believers in the first century were starting to question if following Jesus was actually worth it. They saw their Jewish neighbors going to the great bronze altar in the temple where they would slaughter a bull, give part of it off to the priests, grill the rest, and then share it with their friends. Let me say it like this. Their Jewish neighbors were enjoying grilled steak and having a party while these Jewish Christians were being persecuted for their faith and they were going hungry. The Christians had no sacred buildings, they had no altars, and even their pagan neighbors thought that they had no God, calling them atheists. So there was a need to remind them here that we have a better altar where God's grace strengthens the heart. You see, believers don't just need a meal coming from Jerusalem, we need God's grace to fortify the soul. So rejoice in this because we have it through Christ. Now look at the contrast that he gives to us in verses 11 and 12. Once a year on the day of atonement, the high priest did not eat from this sacrificed animal because it had atoned for the sins of the people. The high priest would actually slit the throat of a bull and a goat. He would catch the blood in a basin and take it to the holy place of the temple. Then someone would take the rest of the animals and burn them outside of the city. But that altar could only cover unintentional sins for a year. It could only sweep the dirt underneath the carpet. But the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross, it purifies believers from all of our sin, the intentional sin and the unintentional sin. And it does not just sweep it underneath the rug. It removes the dirt completely and makes believers clean and ready for heaven because his blood sanctifies. Pastor Dale Dury he told about how one fall afternoon, his grandfather was at home with his grandmother And they heard a knock at the door and they had a visitor. Then it was a neighbor lady who said this to his grandpa. She said, quote, I was out feeding the horses and I felt like God was prompting me to come say thank you for the difference that you made in my life. She sat down and began to tell all the stories about times when his grandfather had helped her as a widow caring for the cows, caring for the horses. She thanked him for being so real. She went through a list of all the things the man had helped her with over the years, even helping with the children when they were having problems. She finished with these words. She said, I just felt like God wanted me to tell you that. His grandfather paused, looked at her and said, it was the Lord Jesus Christ who did it. And there was another pause and then his grandmother struck up a conversation with the lady. And just a few seconds later, they heard a cough and they saw his grandfather slumped over. He was with Jesus. His last words, think about this, his last words on this side of glory war. It was the Lord Jesus Christ who did it. That's beautiful. And that's what the author is doing here in Hebrews. He's telling us everything we have, everything we are, is because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the end of verse 12, it tells us that just as the animals were burned outside the camp, Jesus suffered outside the gate. He died on Golgotha, a hill outside the city walls. This was considered a disgrace. Outside the gate meant that you were separated from the community. Now, both the Jewish leaders and the Roman officials, they rejected him and they took him out of the city of Jerusalem and they crucified him. He became our sin offering in order that his people can be cleansed from the guilt of sin. And so look at what the author tells them next. Starting in verse 13, he says, therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp. Bearing his reproach, for we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Take on the reproach of Christ. Take on the disgrace of the Savior. Embrace Jesus Christ and don't look back. For the Hebrew believers, this meant leaving all those Jewish traditions behind. Don't worry about worship at the temple in Jerusalem. And as the tensions mounted historically with Rome, many Jews would follow that patriotic call to defend the city, to defend the temple, to leave the city would mean that you were leaving the people as a coward. You were committing treason against the Hebrew people. But they should have already known about all this from the prophecy of Daniel 9, that the Romans would come and the Romans would destroy the city and the temple after the death of the Messiah. You see here, the Jewish Christians and Hebrews were told, look to the heavenly city that is yet to come, because any city that is built by man, it will not last. Now, believers in Christ, they have no permanent home here on earth. Our home is the coming eternal kingdom of God. And any believer found outside the city gate with Christ was already considered to be outside that Jewish community. You see, just as Christ was paraded outside the city in public ridicule and disgrace, Christians should be willing to take a stand, especially in this day, in this sick and evil day we live in, take a stand for him, join him in that place of shame. We bear the reproach of Christ when we identify ourselves with him ungodly people will shame and ridicule Christians, but become a disciple of him. Learn from the master. Now, if the Jewish Christians no longer needed to go to the temple, then what sacrifices are we supposed to give as Christians? What sacrifices are we supposed to give? He tells us, starting in verse 15, where he says, therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share for with such sacrifices. God is well pleased. Worship of God is no longer found in the temple. It is to be the fruit of our lips. It is to be the lives we live. Do you see it here in the text? Let us not just once in a while, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. Not just when life is going well, but even especially when life is hard acknowledge Christ's character, even when life is hard, recognize he is good. Even when life doesn't seem to be, that's hard to do, isn't it? That's easy to say and hard to do, but that's why the Bible calls it a sacrifice of praise. But this sacrifice of praise, it will transform your life when you worship God this way. Former pastor Ed Dobson, he had to learn some of these lessons the hard way. In the fall of 2000, Ed was diagnosed with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. In 2012, Ed shared his ongoing struggle to give thanks to God while living with this incurable condition. And he wrote at that time, there are many things for which I am not grateful. I can no longer button the buttons on my shirt. I can no longer put on a heavy jacket. I can no longer raise my right hand above my head. I can no longer write. I can no longer eat with my right hand. I eat with my left hand, and now that is even becoming a challenge. And over time, all of these challenges will only get worse and worse and worse. So what in the world, he said, do I have to be grateful for? And he wrote this so much and then listen, Lord. Thank you for waking me up this morning. Lord, thank you that I can turn over in my bed. Lord, thank you that I can still get out of bed. Lord, thank you that I can walk to the bathroom. Lord, thank you that I can still brush my teeth. Lord, thank you that I can still eat breakfast. Lord, thank you that I can dress myself. Lord, thank you that I can still drive my car. Lord, thank you that I can still walk. Lord, thank you that I can still talk. And the list goes on and on. And he ends with this, he says, I have learned in my journey with ALS to focus on what I can do, not on what I can't. I have learned to be grateful for the small things in my life and for the many things that I can still do. Now, three years after he wrote this, Ed went to be home with the Lord. But when your prayers shift from give me or get me out of here to giving thanks, even in the midst of your pain, you know, you know, at that point, believer, that your life has been changed. It's easy. It's so easy to complain when we suffer, but how important it is to just stop and praise him. Praise God in your life continually. This is the worship that God wants from us. And this is the transformational worship he gives to those who walk with him. It's even more difficult to share with others and help them out when time is short and we have little to give, isn't it? But God is pleased with sacrificial giving. He accepts this sacrifice. Share with others. Give what you can, not out of guilt, not because you feel guilty, but because the love of Christ compels you. We do this out of gratitude. God isn't looking for blood sacrifices, but he is looking for us to be living sacrifices to him, to delay down our lives because his glory is our focus, not our own comfort. The author tells us in verse 17, he says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls. As those who must give account, let them do so with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable to you. Years ago, I came across an article, an old article on how to get rid of your pastor. Here you go, Walter. This is for you. You listening? All right. Here's what the article suggested. If you want to get rid of a pastor, look him straight in the eye while he's preaching and say amen every once in a while. He'll preach himself to death. (laughs) or pat him on the back and brag on his good points, he'll probably work himself to death. Rededicate your life to Christ and ask the preacher for something to do in the church to help around the church or lead a person to Christ. He'll die of heart failure or get the church to unite in prayer for the preacher. And he'll soon become so effective that a different church will be glad to take him off your hands. Submit to church leadership. Boy, everybody loves this topic. Yield to their guidance and direction in your life. Now, if you want to love and honor those who lead the body of Christ, follow their leadership. God has called them to lead. So don't let them just walk on down the road by themselves, doing it all by themselves, because any believer, any leader should know that they must give an account for how they lead when they stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ. They have to give an account. Why? Because the people don't belong to the leaders. The people belong to Jesus Christ. Leadership is not lordship. Hear me on that. Leadership is not lordship. It is setting the example, communicating God's word, and then inviting others to follow. When we have someone doing this, God calls you to follow. And remember these words for when your situation in life changes and you find yourself looking for a church, don't follow a pastor who leads you in any direction that is contrary to what God has already directed in his holy and perfect word. Don't follow a pastor who tries to control you. Don't follow after someone filled with pride. Don't follow someone who is not setting the example for you to follow but when you get someone who is humbly communicating God's word and lives it out you'd be foolish not to follow someone like that so look for a humble servant of God teaching his word and don't give him grief the author says don't make it harder for them to serve because they have to answer to God because by helping them what are you doing you're helping yourself A leader of the church is not there for their own gain, but instead they take on this enormous responsibility because God has called them to the work of helping people to mature in Christ. And to be honest friends, that's why I'm here because I believe this. I believe God has called and equipped me to help people mature in their journey in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the only reason why I'm here. And if you want to grow in your faith, if you want to become all that Christ wants you to be, don't make life difficult for people that serve and pray for them. Look what he says, verses 18 and 19. Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner Pray for your leaders. Ask God to help them stay pure in Christ. It's been said many times if a church wants a better pastor, it can get one by praying for the pastor that it has. The author of Hebrews wants to be restored, he says, to his people. He wanted to be honorable in all things, and he wanted to keep a clear conscience before God. He was looking for God to uphold his relationships, his reputation, and his integrity. And he knows that no man can serve in the ministry without the Lord's help. So he asks, he begs the people to pray for him. It's the best thing you can do for your leaders in the church. Pray for them. Ask God to preserve their relationships. Ask God to help them live with honor. Pray for God to help them live out the love of Christ. Pray for God's strength in their life. Because when a church leader falls, it can bring down a lot of people with them. Hold up your leaders in prayer so that the Lord may be glorified. And the author, he closes with a benediction, and we're just going to read it, read it with me. It says, now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in few words. Know that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you, and all the saints, those from Italy, greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen. In the summer of 1999, Pastor Tai Seng, not his real name, but the name that is used here in the States for his own protection. Pastor Seng traveled in northern Cambodia, and throughout that isolated area, most villagers had cast their lot with either Buddhism or Spiritism. Christianity was basically unheard of. But when pastor Sang arrived in one small rural village, the people just warmly embraced him and his message about Jesus Christ. Well, this took him completely by surprise. When he asked the villagers about their openness to the gospel, an old woman shuffled forward and she grabbed his hands. And here's what she said. She said, we've been waiting for you for 20 years. And then she told him the story about God who had hung on the cross Now to understand their situation, we need to back up a little bit in time. And it's to know that in the 1970s, a brutal communist regime took over Cambodia, destroying everything in their path. And when the soldiers finally came to this rural Northern village in 1979, they rounded up the people and forced them to actually start digging their own graves. After the soldiers had finished digging, they prepared themselves to die. Some screamed to Buddha, Other people screamed to demon spirits or to their ancestors because that's all the people knew. They just knew this pagan stuff. But one woman, she started to cry for help based on a distant childhood memory. It was a story her mother had told her about a God who had actually hung on a cross. Well, the woman prayed to that unknown God on the cross and her thinking was this, if this God has known suffering in his own life, then he is also able to show compassion. But her lone cry of prayer was different than all the pagan cries that were going around her. And the people started noticing this and it began to catch on. And soon this entire village started praying to the God who had suffered and hung on a cross. And as they continued facing their own graves, the wailing, was just slowly transformed into quiet prayers. There was an eerie, eerie silence in that hot, hot jungle air. Slowly, as they dared to turn around and face their captors, they discovered that the soldiers were actually gone. And as the old woman finished telling this story, she told pastor saying that ever since that hot humid day from 20 years before, the villagers had been waiting, waiting for someone to come and share the rest of the story about the God who hung on the cross. God has revealed himself to us. God has told us of his own suffering for us, that Christ Chose to suffer outside the city gates for you and for me. His love and his enabling grace, his purpose for our lives, makes it more than possible for us to be able to suffer with him in joy. It changes how we live. It changes everything his grace does. It changes how we worship and we bear his reproach. We seek the city yet to come. We offer the sacrifice of praise to God and our hearts echo the words of praise offered by the author of Hebrews when he said these beautiful words we just read. We'll read them again and we'll close with this. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.
0: Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com. Or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879259, Wasilla, Alaska 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.